In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So last week, we started talking about the story uh, of King David with Bathsheba. And we started the beginning of the story about how um, he was um, at home during the time where the kings normally go out to war. And he was on his roof, and he happened to see this woman bathing. And he was attracted to her, and he called her, um, though he knew that she was married to Uriah the Hittite. Um, and he had a sexual relationship with her, uh, and he didn't intend for it to go any further than that. But then she, he found out that she was pregnant, and so he decided to bring her husband, who was in the war, back from the war, so that he could be with his wife, and so that it would appear that um, that the child that was to be born was his child and not his and not King David's child. Uh, and so when he brought Uriah the Hittite from the war, he tried to get him to go to his house and enticed him um, by sending food and telling him to go be with his wife. But he said no, um, because how is it that all of the soldiers and the other people in the war are out and even the Ark of the Covenant um, is out in the battle? Well, he would go back to his house. Uh, and then he even tried to get him drunk so that he would go back to his house and he refused. So that's kind of where we left it last time. And the whole purpose of studying this is to see how the mindset of King David, someone who was taken with this kind of temptation, someone who otherwise was very well known for his righteousness, godliness, for his service to God. He was, um, God said about him that he was a man after my own heart. And yet we see during these um, couple chapters that his character, um, his personality, everything that he's doing is completely uncharacteristic of what we know about King David. And it tells us something about how people act when they're under temptation, that it's a kind of um, maybe temporary insanity, that a person who desires something so much uh, is completely, you know, uh, puts aside all of their values and morals, um, doesn't care at all about um, God in those moments. And, and actually, we don't even hear God speaking in, in, in these chapters until after everything is done. Um, and that's when... Um, that's when, like for the first time, God kind of begins to speak through Nathan the prophet. So last time we got to this point uh, here where, uh, where he tries to get him drunk um, to go down to his house, but, but he did not. So we're going to continue the story from, from this point. So it says, In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. Now, at this point, after doing everything he can to entice Uriah to go to his house, to cover up for his own sin, now he's to the point where he's decided that he wants to kill him. And he was going to kill him, not necessarily because he wanted Bathsheba to be his wife, because if Bathsheba had not become pregnant to begin with, um, probably nothing else would have come of it. They spent one day together, um, and that was probably going to be the extent of what King David was intending to do. The only reason that it's gone and progressed to this point is because Bathsheba became pregnant. So all of this time now, King David is just trying to cover his sin, right? So after he fell, he's now trying to cover his sin, and he's completely become so numb to the consequences of what he's doing um, because he's so afraid of being exposed, He's so afraid of being found out. He was willing to do anything. Um, and maybe King David is justifying himself by saying, well, a lot of people die in war. Um, a lot of people are dying. Soldiers are dying. 
And all I'm doing is saying, put Uriah in a place in the battle where he is more likely to die. And is it really King David's fault? Maybe he's justifying it in his own mind. Is it really my fault if he dies? Um, anyone could be there. Anyone could die. The, 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 the families, you know, or the, 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 the men who are in, in the war, their families are mourning them all the time, the people who are dying, right? So maybe he is justifying for himself that this isn't really his fault. He is just making maybe more likely that he is going to die. Um, but um, it's not like he raised the, you know, a knife and killed him himself. At least that's how he's thinking about it. So maybe again when we have fallen into some kind of a sin and we're justifying it to ourselves and we're trying to cover, cover it up, we make a lot of excuses to make us feel like we're okay with this. Like, no, it's okay. I'm not, I'm not the bad guy here. You know, like we say, like you're never a villain in your own story. King David did not think he was a villain. He did not think that he was the bad guy here. He just uh, is reacting to the things that are happening. And um, his whole fixation is on covering up the sin that he committed. The other really amazing thing is that who is it who sent the letter to Joab? Joab is the commander of the army, right? So who sent the letter to Joab? It was Uriah himself. So imagine that you're sending this man with a sealed letter, and in the letter it says, I want to kill the messenger, right? I want to kill this man who's delivering this letter. And he trusts Uriah, because as we said, Uriah was a very faithful and loyal servant of King David. He trusts that Uriah is not going to open the letter. He's not going to read what's in it, and he's just going to faithfully deliver it to Joab. That's how much King David trusted Uriah. But at the same time, King David was the one who committed adultery with his wife, um, conceived by her, and now is trying to manipulate Uriah. And when that didn't work, he's now seeking to kill him. You know, in, in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 15, it says, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin. Right? Like when someone's eyes are full of adultery, when they are so consumed with passion uh, of such intensity, that they cannot stop themselves and they cannot stop even from justifying themselves. They're willing to do anything to get the object of their desire. This is how lust works. So here he is um, wanting to set Uriah at the front of the battle. Again, maybe justifying his own conscience, saying, well, if, if he dies, he dies. He's in a war. Um, and he's sending this message by Uriah's own hand to Joab. So it was, while Joab besieged the city, that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. So Joab received the letter, put Uriah in a place where it was like the fiercest part of the battle, where the, the, the strongest of the enemies were, and sure enough, Uriah died in battle. Um, because they allowed themselves to get very near to the city. So, you know, the, the city would be like walled cities and they would be archers that would be standing around the city. And there would be certain places where it wasn't safe to be um, if there was going to be maybe someone who was going to shoot with an arrow um, and kill the people. So they ended up going very close to the city intentionally, right? Intentionally. Joab sent the army closer to the city um, intentionally for the purpose of killing Uriah the Hittite. So actually, the sin that King David committed was not only putting Uriah the Hittite in danger, but he actually put the whole army in danger because he is telling them to change their military tactics to something that would be um, not, a, not a smart idea to do. It would be bad militarily um, just for the sake of wanting to kill this man. 
all the while King David justifying what he was doing. If it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? So, so here, Joab is like um, sending a message back to King David. Okay, and so he's telling this person who is uh, who is sending the message back to King David about what's happened. So King David's response would be, "Well, why did you go so close to the city? That's that's a poor choice. That's a bad decision, and that's why King's David's King's David's wrath would rise. Like he would be upset. Why are you why are you sending the army so close? So then he would say, "What." Um, Why did you approach so near the city when, when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So, so, so he's saying if King David criticizes you for, for, for allowing the army to get so close to the wall because previously there were, there were cases where um, people could throw like heavy objects, millstones from the wall and crush the soldiers who were under. So it was common practice not to approach the wall. So as King David would be upset, saying, why did you allow the army to go so close? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Meaning what? Meaning like King David would now understand, oh, the reason that you did this was because you were trying to kill Uriah, which is what I asked you to do. Right? So he wouldn't be upset at that point. He's like, okay, you, you, you sent the whole army, you know, close to the wall to kill one man. And the king now, as long as the man is dead, he can rest. So out of this whole time since King David fell into the sin, up until now, King David has been stressed. He's been stressed. He's been concerned. He's been afraid. He doesn't want to be exposed. He's, he's frantically and desperately doing anything to cover the sin that he committed. And now for the first time, when he hears that Uriah is dead, he would be what? Relieved. It's like, finally now, the thing that I have been trying to attain is mine, and I, I can be relieved, or at least that's how he feels, okay? So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him, and the messenger said to David, surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah, Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as the other. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, so encourage him. So what was his response? What is King David's response to Joab? What does it mean? When he says, do not let this thing displease you for the sword devours one as well as the other. It happens. Like these things happen, you know, too bad, too bad for Uriah that he ended up dying, right? Because of this, you know, misfortune, right? Again, justifying himself, not taking any blame um, for himself. So now, actually, now that Uriah is dead, King David has another benefit to himself, which is that he can marry Bathsheba, which is what he would wanted from the beginning, um, but he couldn't as long as Uriah was alive. So maybe even in the mind of Uriah, right, this is actually an even better outcome, you know, like if, or sorry, in the mind of David, this would be an even better outcome. 
like if if she hadn't gotten pregnant and he wouldn't have pursued any of this maybe he still desired her but he couldn't have her because she was married now that her husband is dead maybe now he can marry her okay um and and so so even he could maybe perhaps see this as being like providence you know like this is god arranged all of this you know for me so again sometimes when we desire something so so much that we begin to interpret that that it's actually god's will for me because of my fierce desire for it there has to be a way for me to obtain it and i can continue to to search for a way even committing sin even hurting other people and so on just because i justify it because of my very strong desire in proverbs 6:32 it commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding he who does so destroys his own soul right so the destruction part that is happening to king david now he doesn't recognize it yet he doesn't recognize the damage that is happening to him as a result of his relentless pursuit of something that was off limits something that was wrong and he continues to pursue it because his desire is so intense and because he wants to cover his sin he doesn't see who he is in this moment you know when a person is so taken with a the temptation they don't look at themselves objectively to see who am i right now am i am i doing something rational or reasonable like if i saw some other person do the same thing how would i view them and how is it that i can justify it when i myself do it so up to now king david has been completely kind of um numb and blinded to his own role in all of this when the wife of uriah heard that uriah her husband was dead she mourned for her husband okay so it's it is likely that her mourning was real she did love her husband and she was sad for him even though she did commit sin against her husband and she participated in hiding it um from her husband but um it doesn't mean that she hated her husband um she loved her husband and she was mourning him and when her mourning was over david sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son but the thing that david had done displeased the lord so finally after all of this um after the period of mourning that bathsheba had for her husband king david married her and now it could be seen or it could be believed that the child was his own and it was conceived during the time of their marriage okay after all of this had happened uh, people could could believe it you know that this was the case so in the mind of king david okay all the loose ends have been tied right um i got the woman that i wanted i covered up the sin that i had she is you know she is now my wife her husband is gone i don't feel i don't feel any blame i don't feel any guilt because he happened to die in war and that's not anything that i can control okay but for the first time now we hear about what is it that was god's reaction to all that king david has done up until now he's not mentioned but here we say what but the thing that david had done displeased the lord and in hebrews 13 verse 4 it says marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled but fornicators and adulterers god will judge so he's saying when someone breaks the covenant of marriage which is very sacred in the eyes of god there will be a judgment right and god is the one who judges because maybe in the eyes of people nobody really i mean yes there are some people who knew like joab for instance he knew that um king david was trying to kill uriah the hittite so there are people who were aware of what king david was doing but no one was going to call out the king no one was going to tell him no what you're doing is wrong no one tried to 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 change his mind 
Um, they just kind of follow through with whatever it is he told them to do. But here we, re we read about how, how, how God is displeased with what Uriah is doing. Then the Lord sent Nathan, this is Nathan the prophet, to David, and he said to him, uh, he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he res restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So what was the approach that Nathan took in order to rebuke David. A parable about someone else, right? Because like I said, it's easy for us to detect the, f the flaws and the mistakes and the weaknesses of other people, but it's much harder for us to see it in ourselves, right? So Nathan started with this story about this man who was poor and had a lamb and the lamb was very precious to him, and a rich man who had a lot of flocks. And yet when a visitor came to visit the rich man, the rich man chose to take the one single lamb of the poor man and use it to feed the rich man, as opposed to taking one of his own. So anyone reading this would think, yeah, obviously, like if you're a rich man and you have a whole flock, then why would you not take from one of your own flock in order to feed the visiting your visitor rather than to take the one and only lamb of your neighbor who's poor and that's all that he has it's it's cruel and it it's 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 wrong anyone can see that even king david saw that and and as king david is is answering this right and he says as the lord lives the man who has done this shall surely die you can see that he 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 has he's logical and he can think and he has a moral compass and he understands like what is right and wrong right he just never equated himself to the story. He never saw in himself what this story is representing, right? Because if he was able to see it himself as this rich man, right? That King, king David was a king. He had everything, right? He had multiple wives. Um, he had the palace. He had, you know, soldiers. He had servants. He had everything, right? And yet you fixated on the one thing that you didn't have but you wanted that belonged to another, and you killed that man, right, in order to obtain what was his. You know, it, it reminds us also the story of, um, of the, 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 the poor man who owned a vineyard. Um, uh, what was his name? The Jezreelite. Um, King Ahab wanted his vineyard. Um, and, and, and even though King Ahab had many vineyards and many possessions, there was this one specific vineyard that was owned by this man, that was like a neighbor to King Ahab. And he desired his vineyard. And he asked him, can I buy the vineyard from you? And he said, no, this is my father's inheritance. It's been in my family for generations and I will not sell it to you. So it says what about King Ahab that he was so upset that he went in his bed, like in his room, and he started to pout 
because he was he did not ha- he was not able to obtain for himself this vineyard that he wanted. And Jezebel, his wife, ended up killing the man so that he, they could take his vineyard. So it says again, what? Why, King Ahab, were you not contented with all of the things that, that you have received that you already have, but you fixated on the one thing that you didn't have, and that for you became something so important that you were willing to, to kill the man in order to obtain it? So it says something about the spirit of envy and covetousness, that when we covet something, we desire it so intensely that everything else that we have loses its value. Like We don't value anything anymore. Only thing we value is the one thing that we want to obtain for ourselves. Now, definitely, if we were to obtain it, it would become to us just one more thing in the, in the, in the list of things that I have. It doesn't mean that that thing is actually more valuable than anything else. It's just that happens to be like the object of my desire in the moment. And maybe later, the object of my desire will change to be something else. But in that moment, this is the thing that I'm fixated on that I want. Same thing here with King, King David. He wanted this woman. And of course, fulfilling his desire caused all kinds of like chain reaction of problems that started to happen. And every time King David tried to correct the problems, tried to cover the, the sin, he fell into more and more and more sin instead of repenting from the beginning. You know, if King David had repented from the beginning, Okay, then he, he could have, you know, maybe suffered the consequence of his adultery, but Uriah the Hittite would still be alive. So here, King David understands that what this man has done in this story is wrong, and he, you know, says this man should surely die for what he has done. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if it had been too little, I also would have given you much more. So he's addressing now for King David the root cause of his sin, which was the covetousness. He's saying, I gave you everything. Do you remember, if you look back in your life, how I delivered you from the hand of Saul, how I anointed you to be king. Uh, Remember how I helped you with Goliath. Remember all the ways that I protected you. Remember how um, I granted you the house of Saul after Saul died and all of his possessions. And I granted you to be king over both the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. I gave you all these things. And then he adds on top of that, and if this was not enough, I would have even given you more. Like, I'm not stingy with what I'm offering you. I'm giving you everything in abundance right? Everything in abundance. And yet the mind of David was, I'm not happy with what God has given me. I am always looking to obtain more, to have more. It's not enough for me. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. So here he's saying, you're despising God by what you have done, right? Because you're not seeing that God is a good provider for you. You're seeking to, you're, you're disobeying his commandments so that you can obtain for yourself something more. And then he's saying, you have killed Uriah the Hittite. He personalized it to David and said, no, don't think that some army has killed him or that this was some random thing that happened that you have bear no responsibility. No, you, you bear the responsibility. You're the one who killed him because you intended for him to die and you sought for him to die and you arranged things that he, so he would die. So you are the one who have killed him. And you took his wife to be your wife, because that in the end was your goal. You wanted to, to, to have his wife. So here, 
even though King David thought that he was trying to cover his sin, to, to, to keep himself from being exposed, actually the only one that it really matters whether he, he sees our sin or not is God himself, because God is the judge. No other human being judges me, right? I could go my entire life hiding all of my sins from everyone, no matter what they are, but in the end of my life, it won't matter who I deceived, because God cannot be deceived, okay? So God is reminding David here that he has been watching this whole time. And as I said, he has been watching the whole time, but he has been silent, right? He didn't intervene. You know, sometimes we ask, well, why didn't God step in and stop someone from doing something evil? Why didn't God step in and keep me from falling into sin? Well, he's given us free will. You know, no one can say that King David, you know, had no idea that he was breaking the commandments or that what he was doing was wrong. Actually, the reason that David knew that what he was doing was wrong was because he was trying to cover it up. You know, sometimes when we ask the question, um, what is it that, you know, is something right or wrong? We look at ourselves and we say, well, I can tell that it's wrong because I'm, I don't want it to be known. I want it to be covered up. I act in a certain way to cover it up. Okay. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So he's saying the consequences of your sin are going to be severe, right? Are going to be severe. You know, someone who is thinking about adultery, right? Thinking that it's going to be harmless or they're giving in to a desire that they have that's going to be satisfied by committing the sin. Actually, uh, adultery is one of those sins that it, it, it's insatiable. It's not, it's not something that can be satisfied. You're satisfied in the moment and then it comes back even stronger than before. So anyone who thinks that they are satisfying the desire by committing adultery or fornication, they're fooling themselves. It's not something that goes away. It's something that intensifies. The more that you feed it, the more that it intensifies. And here, King David, um, now having obtained in his mind the object of his desire, is now facing the consequences directly from God. And he's saying, he's saying to him what? Because you have done this, right? There is going to be conflict and, and, and no peace in your house for the rest of your life. Right? And we see after this that he has problems with his sons. He has all kinds of problems that happen to his family. He spends the rest of his life in conflict. Right? One of the reasons that God did not allow King David to build the temple, though King David wanted, was because his whole life was categorized by conflict. He, was, he had no peace in his life. He was constantly warring, whether it be warring with the enemies or warring even internally in his own family. And this was the consequence. You know, what is the, the greatest thing actually that we can have is peace. The greatest thing we can have is peace with the people that we are living with, with the people who are around us. This is the greatest thing we can have in life is, is simply peace. Not to attain any particular target or goal, but simply to have peace. So here he's saying um, you will have conflict, and the conflict is not going to be secret. Like you did all of this in secret, but everything that's going to happen to you is going to become public. Everyone is going to know the, the scandals and the conflicts that are going to happen to you um, and your family. So he made it very clear that the consequences that he will experience is very severe. Now, 
What he didn't do is he didn't reject him from being king. When Saul, the, his predecessor, committed sin, right, um, he was rejected outright from being king because he did not repent. He did not offer like a sincere repentance. Here we're going to see that King David is going to repent. But the repentance of King David is not going to cancel the consequences of what is to happen. He still accepted King David. He still saw King David as a righteous king. He still compared all the subsequent kings to King David. King David was still seen as one of the best kings that the Israel ever had. But he was marred with this with this this event, this thing that happened that maybe is the is the worst kind of blemish on King David's record that we see. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Immediately, ha- having been confronted with the sin, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And this isn't a small thing because he could have in many ways justified himself. Saul, his predecessor, justified himself whenever he was accused of sin and he tried to make excuses for why is it that he did what he did. Here, King David didn't try to make any excuses he didn't say oh well she was the one bathing outside he didn't say well you know Uriah could have died anyway he didn't try to make any excuses but he just said I have sinned and he said his sin was against God it wasn't even against Uriah it was against God himself right and this is why David remained faithful to God because he could even understand and perceive in his own person when he had fallen and when he had sinned However, because you, by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. So this child that was born between Bathsheba and David um, was going to die. Okay, And the reason why he, God gave as to why this would happen is because he says what? You have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. What does that mean? What does it mean that he has given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme? He was a bad example. Who are the enemies of the Lord? The enemies of the Lord are like all of the pagan nations, right? And that 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 supposedly Israel is supposed to be like a very holy and righteous nation that worship God, right? And so they have given, like King David's example, as is going to cause like the blasphemy of God. Right, because people are going to say, "Who who are these people who claim that they worship God? They are wicked people." Or look at is it like their king and what their king does, right? So the other thing, when we fall into sin, especially the sin of adultery, right, it causes trouble and 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 it, it causes the like uh, scandalous, like scandal that is known by everyone. You know, people who fall into this, it becomes known. It becomes known, and once it becomes known. Um, it causes a scandal and causes people to to lose their their reputation. I remember there was a very very famous um, Protestant preacher, very very famous, and he was world renowned. And he would go around from all over the world traveling. And he had such a big impact um, in apologetics and and bringing people who are atheists to Christianity. Um, and and he he really did. I mean, he published books and like he was very very famous and very good at what he was doing. But toward the end of his life, it was discovered that actually he had had several affairs and things like this that had happened. And it completely destroyed his witness. After decades of service and, and doing this, people would read about him now that this has happened. And what would happen? The enemies of God, 
the atheists, the people who hate Christianity, they say, look, even this man, this man who claims that he was, you know, this, 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 this great and holy man that everyone looked up to him, actually what he was, he, he was a fraud. You know, he wasn't, li he wasn't living the life that he was preaching, right? And so it's very scary, and very dangerous, um, and it has such a bad effect on, on people. This is not to try to judge the man. We all have weaknesses and we all have sins, but there's a price to be paid, right, for the sins that we commit. So in conclusion, this whole idea of entertaining adultery, it leads to destruction. And really any sin that we fall into it, especially sins that affect other people, um, it, can, it can cause great, great destruction. In Proverbs 7, it says, Now therefore listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. So in chapter 7, it personifies like adultery and lust as like a woman. It says, Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. So God's commandments are for our own protection. And whenever we stray from them, um, we are liable to cause a bigger problem for us, as we have seen here in the life of King David. Um, and, and one sin begets another, begets another, and so on, until we find ourselves mired in sin and, 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 and un unable to escape. Does anyone have any comments about this? Okay. Glory be to God forever. We can pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing and your protection. Teach us, O Lord, how to remain faithful to you and to be thankful and content with what you have given us. We ask you, O Lord, to strengthen us as a church and to bless all of your people in every place. Help us to be good examples for one another and teach us, O God, to be strong in the face of temptation. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints here, as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass pass against us and lead us not to temptation but deliver us from the evil one in christ jesus our lord kingdom power and the glory forever and ever amen the love of god the father the grace of the only begotten son our lord god and savior jesus christ the communion the gift of the holy spirit be with you all go in peace the peace of the lord be with you all amen